everybody, and welcome to School Psych Podcast. My name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist working in the state of Maryland. Real excited for a great topic tonight, um, but I'm going to pass it over to Rebecca, who's going to tell everybody how to participate tonight. Rebecca? Yes. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our wonderful um, event tonight. I'm so excited to have our guest, but I want to um, tell you about how to participate so that if you're able to view live, please log in to your Google account because you'll see a chat box right next to the video screen if you're watching us tonight. And um, you can comment, uh, ask questions, or just share what's on your mind. We, we're watching that chat um, dialogue go, and it's really interesting and interactive. It's fun to, to see what, what you're thinking. Also, if you are feeling a little bit more shy, you can message me on Facebook. You can either message the school site um, podcast page in um, inbox messages or write a post under tonight's event. Um, and you can also message School Psych, your school psychologist. And lastly, if you can, whether you're on Facebook or Twitter, use the hashtag Psyched Podcast because I will be looking for the latest posts with the hashtag. And definitely, if you are listening um, after our live event and, and connecting and thinking of um, questions, please continue to use the hashtag and comment and ask those questions because we can um, have this conversation over time. And now I'm gonna pass it off to Eric who is going to introduce himself and our wonderful guest. All right, thank you, Rebecca. Uh, hi everyone, I'm Eric and I'm a school psychologist also in Connecticut. And I'm excited to have our guest with us this evening, Dr. Kirby Wyckoff as a nationally certified school psychologist, and she holds a doctoral degree from Rutgers University in psychology, a master's of education in school psychology from Columbia, and a bachelor's degree in psychology from Lehigh, great schools. And she has also recently completed a master's of public health from Dartmouth. She's an associate professor and co-director of the school psychology program at Eastern University. And her current research program focuses on the ACEs experience experiences, intergenerational trauma, disparity and inequity, cultural disproportionality and trauma-informed systems. She's particularly interested in child, maternal and family health and wellness in school and community settings. And interestingly, I'm, I'm interested to hear more about this, Dr. Wyckoff, uh, your community-based participatory research, which utilizes mutually beneficial partnerships with community organizations and leverages the power of qualitative and quantitative methodology. She has recently authored the book in the Wiley Essential series called Trauma-Informed Assessment and Intervention in Schools and Community Settings, and has authored a number of articles and is involved in a number of studies regarding the intersection of public health and public education with regards to the role that adverse childhood experiences play and the outcomes for youth and their families. Uh, Dr. Wyckoff is also the co-chair of the National Association of School Psychology's Maltreatment and Trauma Interest Group, where she and her colleagues are leading efforts to create a national needs assessment to assess trauma-related training and needs of school psychologists in this area across the country. She and these same colleagues have recently completed a national pilot study examining this topic, which was published in the Journal of Applied School Psychology. Dr. Wyckoff is also involved as a public health researcher doing policy and advocacy work through Children's Hospital of Philadelphia's Policy Lab. And through this work, she is raising awareness of the impact of trauma and what that has for our students, parents, communities, as well as demonstrating that practitioners and researchers 
have a voice in having a positive impact in addressing outcomes in this area. So uh, Rebecca and I had the privilege of reading through your book this summer and talking a lot about that as a, a little book study. And also we're privileged to be a part of some of your communications regarding the Children's Health, uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia's um, research. So I'm really excited to be talking with you sort of in person and, uh, and hear what you have to say about all this amazing advocacy work and the effects of trauma and uh, treatment outcomes. So welcome, Dr. Wyckoff. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I feel like I've been looking forward to this for some time. We've been chatting about it for some time, so it's exciting that it's finally here. Um, and yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about some of these things. I think these are complex topics. These are topics that impact all of us, um, sometimes whether we realize it or not. And um, when I was preparing this uh, presentation, I had asked both of you, you know, where should I focus my efforts? Because really, this is a semester's worth of content. And then I thought to myself, no, this is not a semester's worth of content. It's not even a graduate degree's worth of content. This is a lifetime's worth of learning that I think we all have to be committed to in order to really deeply understand um, adversity, trauma, inequity. Um, disproportionality and really be a meaningful agents of change. So I, I was reflecting on my preparation for this and thinking, you know, no, it, the learning's not over. It still continues for all of us. So uh, with that in mind, uh, let's go ahead and get started. So today I'll be focusing our time on trauma-informed communities, what that means, what I think that means, um, and this idea of really bridging practice and policy and what um, what that means for practitioners, what that means for researchers, and sort of how that impacts communities at, at various levels. So um, I'll go ahead and get started. So say hello to others. Eric just gave me a lovely introduction. Thank you, Eric, for that. Um, when we had you know, started planning this, you'd said, you know, would you be willing to talk a little bit about how you got involved in some of the advocacy and policy work that you're doing? So I thought I might take some time to do that uh, before we jump in. So um, I've been a school psychologist uh, since 2008 and, um, you know, practicing in various ways, really on the front lines, working with kids and families. And I was in uh, Massachusetts, spending some time in Massachusetts, working as a faculty member up in central Massachusetts, and was doing a lot of uh, research around uh, discipline and suspensions and looking at some policy related to um, how schools handled those things within their district and across the state, and was lucky enough to get involved in the work that Susan Cole is doing um, with the Safe, Safe and Supportive Schools Commission, which was in response to some legislative work that had been done in Massachusetts. As my colleagues and I were working on looking at inequity in discipline outcomes, so looking at suspensions and really seeing that uh, black and brown kids are suspended at three to four times the rate of their white counterparts, and that those disproportionalities start really in preschool and continue to grow through high school. Um, it had us thinking a lot about the role of trauma, the role of adversity, um, how schools are maybe supposed to be places where kids and families get their needs met and feel safe, but for some kids and families that might might not be true. So a lot of my initial training, like all of us as school psychologists, was really focused on you know working with kids and families in the school setting, right? Thinking about systems in schools, thinking about assessment, thinking about counseling. But as I started to do this work around um, inequities in, in suspensions and looking at some more policy related things, it occurred to me that I really didn't have the tools that I needed to think about things from a bigger lens. So while I had a lot of training um, in how to do clinical work and how to do counseling, really focusing on trauma, I didn't really have that big picture lens that I needed to think about, you know, how legislative efforts impacted um, outcomes, how various historical um, movements or um, decisions 
impacted communities in really different ways. So I, I realized that I needed to learn some more and decided to go and get a master's of public health because I felt like there's this intersection between public health and public education that we hadn't really been maybe tapping into, or at least I hadn't been. So that's why I went back to get the master's of public health um, and really to educate myself about you know, how healthcare interacts with public education and, and really recognizing the fact that schools are one part of a community and that is the part that we are typically involved in. But I think our role can be expanded beyond that in ways that is really, really important and gives voice to some of these things that we're going to be talking about today. So I don't know, Eric, does that kind of answer that burning question you had about how in the heck did you get from that to that? <laughs> Most definitely. And and just reading some of the things that you've posted over the summer, I can see that that degree has really provided you with that broader lens because some of the things you've, you've said and some of the articles that you attached and shared uh, on your um, social media um, really opened my eyes to some things that I wasn't aware of and just the broader role that we can take in advocating uh, in these areas. So yeah, definitely answers my question. Thank you. Sure. And I think we'll continue to unpack that a little bit because like you, I didn't necessarily realize all the places that these things intersected and how um, having a wider lens to view these things really helps us do our craft and think about the communities that we serve. So I, I had a similar experience as you did to going, oh my goodness, wow, that's connected to that. That's connected to that. Yeah. Um, right. Oh my gosh, I hadn't thought of that. And wow, hey, guess what? Maternal health is actually also connected to this, right? Those kind of realizations um, where you think about things that you hadn't previously thought about. So um, I <laughs> I always have, I typically have a trigger warning and my colleagues and I, Dr. Yolanda Turner, who is a phenomenal uh, psychologist and uh, clinician at Eastern University focusing on uh, gender and sexuality. We had this conversation we presented recently at the Pennsylvania School Site Conference. And we had this conversation about trigger warnings and what we thought about them and if they were appropriate and how to handle them. And we, we came up with this idea of um, proceed with thoughtfulness. So this awareness, you know, to, to tell people ahead of time, hey, we're going to talk about some tough stuff, but that doesn't mean that we can't talk about it. It doesn't mean we can't have the conversation. So beware of that and enter into this conversation that we're having tonight with thoughtfulness, um, with this awareness that sometimes the things that we talk about when we think about adversity and trauma bring up stuff in ourselves that's uncomfortable to think about. So um, we like kind of this idea with proceed with thoughtfulness. And with that in mind, um, you know, I ask when I give these presentations about my work, I ask folks to be fully present, um, to experience, expect to experience discomfort. And I wish that was original. It's not. It's Dr. Joy DeGroy's um, work on, on um post-traumatic slave syndrome. She talks a lot about expecting to experience discomfort. So I really like that. Speak your truth and expect and accept a lack of closure. So it's likely that at the end of our conversation tonight, you will not have all the answers. I will not have all the answers to give you, but we will walk away likely with more questions. Um, and to me, that's where really the fun begins because we get to think about where we go from here. So, um, you know, uh, spoiler alert, uh, there are no grand answers to all of the problems related to trauma-informed care in this one hour long presentation, but um, know that we'll at least have a conversation that'll get us thinking and get us, get us started. So um, I, I had used to assume that folks understood what trauma is, but really that was a poor decision on my part. And uh, Rebecca and I had this little exchange prior to going live where we said, you know, Folks have different understanding of what trauma is, what that means for trauma-informed care, um, whether that means single incident traumatic stressor, or that means a PTSD diagnosis, or that means an adverse childhood experience, or that means an adverse community experience. 
right? This idea of what exactly are we talking about? So we're going to spend some time unpacking that. Um, and you'll see that I take a, a fairly um, robust lens when viewing what trauma and adversity is with the full recognition awareness that each of these different definitions plays a role in different contexts, right? So we'll talk a little bit more about that. But big picture stuff, trauma is this exceptional experience. It's powerful, it's dangerous, and it overwhelms someone's ability to cope. I um, really, really like the work of Robert Sapolsky. I don't know if anyone else out there is, you know, like a evolutionary biology nerd like myself, but Robert Sapolsky is a brilliant man. Um, he wrote a book called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, and it's a phenomenal, he, he's, he's a, um, neurobiologist and an evolutionary biologist. And he talks a lot about the role of stress adversity and how our bodies respond to stress and the ways in which the physiological arousal system um, has a cascade effect that really impacts us, not just that one time, but maybe multiple times. So highly recommend Sapolsky's work if you haven't checked that out. Um, so again, powerful experience. And this piece about it overwhelms our person's a person's capacity to cope, which then means in some ways that there is some subjectivity to this, right? Everyone is going to have a different um, threshold for which they feel like they are unable to cope. And past experiences often play a role in that. So this is um, from the Center for the Developing Child at Harvard University. Awesome, phenomenal resource um, that I'll you know suggest you all visit. But I like this way that they've broken this down, right? So we've got this idea of stressors and we've got positive, tolerable, and toxic stress. So those positive ones are the brief increases in heart rate, mild elevations, the things that kind of psych you up before something exciting or something, um, you know, that's uh, a little bit nerve wracking, but also you're feeling uh, pumped to do. So I often think about my history as an athlete and how, you know, that positive stress would kind of really gear us up for an event. Um, and, and I think we all kind of can think about those times uh, when we when we experience that maybe a test, right, where we felt, you know, just enough of the stress to really perform well, um, and to alert us to the fact that this was a high stakes performance, but not so much that it tipped us over the threshold. Tolerable are, are these more serious temporary stress responses. They are buffered by supportive relationships and other um, components of, of resiliency, which we'll talk more about. Then toxic stress is going to be prolonged activation. And Sapolsky talks about this idea, you know, when a zebra is out grazing, they're eating grass and, um, you know, they're all doing this in a big herd. And if they notice that there is, you know, a lion coming, they'll lift their heads up, their ears will become alert, they'll look at the lion and they'll run really fast to get away from the lion, right? And they'll run maybe for a couple minutes, um, they'll get pretty far away. And then they look, the lion's gone, and they go back to grazing, right? They turn that stress response on, and then they turn it back off. We as humans are really bad at turning it off, and we tend to keep it on. We tend to keep it on um, after the threat is gone. And if our threats are more toxic in nature, and they compound one another, then our ability to return to baseline um, and experience sort of that state of homeostasis or relaxation is, is impaired. So does that make sense for folks? And give, tell me kind of how that lands for you guys. It does make sense. It, yeah. it makes me think of uh, maybe a, a complication in my mind. I was listening to Armchair Expert, yeah. um, and he recently had, I'm forgetting the, the scientist's name, but he was an evolutionary uh, biologist, and he was saying about a Denmark study where, um, where right before or during a time of famine, um, the children born in that era um, were more likely to have triggered a gene for obesity. And the, so when the famine ended and there was food, those generations previous to uh, post the, the famine 
had generational trauma that triggered a gene. And it just makes me think, you know, so there's, there's these, these three levels of, of stress and trauma, but also if you add on to that, what got passed down to you, what kinds of traumas did your family suffer? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm really glad you brought that up in that study because that that's ultimately what intergenerational trauma and epigenetics is all about, right? That's this idea that, um, yes, the the stressors of your ancestors do impact us in very significant ways. There's some really interesting research on Holocaust survivors um, and their descendants two and three generations later, right? Um, and we also think of you know, uh, sort of systemic oppression in our country and the history that we have with slavery and how those traumas and those stressors would absolutely impact at a biological and physiological and a genetic level um, future generations. So I'm glad you brought that study up. And, and I think there are increasingly, as our tools become more sophisticated, we can look at those things more closely and recognize that, um, you know, the voices of folks who have lived experience, who have, who have talked about that now have um, you know, science to back it up. Although, you know, I would wager a guess that we don't actually need the science to believe and validate that those experiences are real for them. Um, so I'm going to do this briefly because I think folks um, maybe know a little bit about the ACEs study. Uh, I'll do kind of a brief summary just to kind of make sure we're on the same page and also have this understanding that when I think about trauma and adversity, I am thinking about a continuum. I am thinking, you know, whether you look at the Harvard Uni University's continuum or another one, this idea that we have, you know, positive, tolerable to toxic stressors, and we have single incidents to cumulative daily stressors, there's a continuum. And I, and I think we need to be aware that those are all there and then um, use our understanding of that in, in various settings um, to sort of make change or move our understanding forward. So I do want to talk briefly about the ACEs study. So really quickly, right, partnership between CDC and Kaiser Permanente. They studied um, really the health and occupational outcomes of around 17,000 folks. Important note, these were mostly white folks, mostly middle-class folks, mostly folks that were very well insured and were employed, okay? So um, you're, you're not necessarily talking about a, a group that was um, marginalized, you know, um, overall. Uh, ultimately, the more ACEs that you had, the poorer your outcomes were, right? More, worse. Um, ultimately, the, the final data said that there was like 19.7 years of life loss. So you could die 20 years earlier if you had four or more ACEs. So four in that original study was sort of that tipping point. But again, I think of that on a continuum, just because someone's had um, one ACE doesn't mean that they're not going to experience the impact of that. And just because someone has a five or six doesn't certainly mean that their, um, their future trajectory is negative, right? So this idea that if you were exposed to adversity, you were likely to experience poor health outcomes. So this is the triangle that always goes with that. Um, ironically, it, it reminds me a lot of the RTII or MTSS triangle, school psychologists. Um, and you know, the more I learned about public health, the more I realized that public health and school psychology actually had a lot in common. But this is, you know, this is the um, the visual that we all think of when we think about ACEs. You have these adverse childhood experiences. Your neurodevelopment is disruptive, and that's where um, Sapolsky's work is really uh, helpful. Then you have social, emotional, cognitive impairment. Then you adopt health risk behaviors. Then you experience disease, disability, social problems, and then ultimately die earlier than you might have otherwise. So just a, another way of showing that, right? The higher you go up, the higher your impact is um, across multiple domains. Um, 
Of the top 10 leading causes of death in the United States, we know that these are impacted by adversity. So heart disease, cancer, uh, respiratory disease, stroke, diabetes, uh, nephritis, and uh, intentional self-harm. All of those out of the top 10 are impacted by adversity and having a childhood experience of adversity. Bottom line, they're common, but largely unrecognized. When this study was done in the 90s, very much so unrecognized, more increasingly, more so we're having a, a increased conversation about it and folks are more and more aware of it um, with, with, you know, medical associations recognizing the impact, you know, doctors' offices and physicians now, you know, integrating this awareness into their practice. But when the study was originally done, we learned that they were common and a lot of people didn't know about them. We also learned that they're strong predictors of later social functioning, well-being, health, risk, disease, medical cost, death. They're the basis for much of adult medicine and many, many major public health and social problems. They are interrelated and not solitary, right? They connect to one another. Really, when you think about it, adverse childhood experiences are the leading determinant of health, social, and economic well-being of our nation. It seems like maybe a bold comment, but I feel like understanding adversity, trauma, stress, and the impacts of those things could be instrumental in, in improving the health and wellness of, of our communities. Here are some um, just data points on, you know, that tipping point of four or more ACEs. Again, just in way of summary, folks aren't, aren't aware of this data. So you are more likely to make a suicide attempt, experience anxiety, depression, poor self-rated health, low life satisfaction, STI, chronic disease, and more likely to engage in risky behavior. I think when folks think of adversity, they often think of things like, okay, well, it would make sense to me that someone might be anxious or depressed later in life. But asthma, diabetes, cancer? Right. Those are not the things that folks initially think of when they think about maybe experiencing maltreatment or sexual abuse as a child. Um, so this awareness that they don't just impact mental health and emotional health, but also physical health is really, really important. This is a really important piece of data, because when we talk about why we need to get people to the table and how we build our advocacy efforts, whether we like it or not, connecting this to financial cost is really, really important, right? When we start talking to schools and administrators and school boards and um, boards of hospitals about, hey, guess what? If we don't address this, this is how much this is going to cost us, right? Those are the places, again, whether we like it or not, where I think people become more compelled to act. So healthcare costs of individuals with a history of maltreatment, which predominantly include ACEs, can be double right? That's a lot of money when we think about lifetime of healthcare spending. Any questions about that? Does it make sense? Anyone else experienced that bit about having to really make the financial case to get some folks to the table? Am I the only one that's experienced that? No, it makes great sense. It just, yeah. It's one of those um, simple but difficult <laughs> situations. Yeah. It's one of those things that I think as school psychologists, we, we don't always think about that and we feel maybe a little bit like a little bit off about going to finance, you know, bringing up financial stuff, but that's, yeah. that's what districts, you know, that's what mm -hmm. districts are really right. um, seeing a lot because it, it does come down to that in some cases. So it's important to, to tie that in really. Right. Yeah. And perhaps for schools, we could frame that in terms of um, disruptive and maladaptive behavior and uh, impacting educational outcomes and the cost that that has on on all of us. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, one of the things I think about when I think about this data point is what we saw in Flint, Michigan, right? So you had an entire community of children and families impacted ultimately by lead poisoning. 
the special education spending over the next, I would wager, not just one, two generations at least is going to be immense. I mean, it is going to be, it will actually be crippling to the local economy, uh, but that's a really good example of how health, right, and exposure on, on a sort of public health scale can impact spending at the special education level. Alone, you know, the number of children that are going to be referred to us, folks like us in Michigan, are is going to be astronomical um, and really uh, crippling. Um, so, Eric, thanks for the segue. So why the heck should we care about this as school psychologists? What's the point, right? And I think most of the time school psychologists understand what the point is, but we often have to explain to our colleagues why this is important. Why should you, teacher, care about this? Why administrator should you care about this? Why school bus driver should you care about this, right? This is why. We know that adversity, exposure to adversity, and chronic traumatic stress impacts kids in a lot of ways, both in school and out of school. In terms of school-related impact, we think, see things like lower grades, lower scores on standardized testing, lower frustration tolerance in preschool settings, so that ability to tolerate um, frustration when maybe a kiddo doesn't get something right the first time can be decreased if they've, if they've had uh, chronic exposure to adversity. Lower persistence and higher avoidance of challenging tasks. So rather than try that thing that I know was hard, I'm just not going to, right? That, that's an avoidance of a, of a perceived difficult task. Um, in preschool, we see higher ratings of anger, higher raters of academic failure, grade retention, dropout, suspension and expulsion, and referral to special education services. So this is just a, you know, this is only a, a, the tip of the iceberg. Um, uh, Stacy Overstreet and, and her team in New Orleans have done a lot of work in this area looking at how are kids in schools impacted. And the bottom line is that they're impacted and they're impacted significantly. Um, when we think about the, the question, right, the original ACES study, you know, had these 10 sort of markers. And we now know, you know, more than 20 years later, that um, there are additional things that we need to be thinking about. And Rebecca, this gets, this has me thinking about our earlier conversation, right? What exactly is a trauma? What exactly is a stressor? What exactly is adversity? So the conventional original ACEs looked at things like physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, neglect, emotional, physical, domestic violence, substance abuse, incarcerated care provider, and mental illness in the home. The Philadelphia ACEs Project expanded those definitions, and since then, others also have increased their awareness that there are more than just those initial 10. So things like witnessing violence, living in an unsafe neighborhood, experiencing chronic racism, living in foster care, experiencing bullying, there are others. And I think part of what makes this hard is that in some ways, it's the experience of the um, victim that that dictates whether or not that that was experienced as a, a, a traumatic stressor, right? Um, we know that when they are cumulative and they stack, they become increasingly difficult to manage. And the literally your baseline physiolo physiological arousal, say it starts here. You know, if you don't have any chronic stressors in your life, it starts here. And if you get a little bit stressed, you 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 know your arousal goes up to here, but you can come back down. Your arousal goes up to here, but you can come back down. People that have chronic traumatic stressors or adversity. Their baseline might be here in the very beginning, but then they have more, 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 more. Then their baseline's up here. Then they spike and they can't actually even get back to their own baseline, let alone the baseline that they would have had had they not had those traumatic stressors. So these these are literally impacted us and folks at a biological level. And it's not just those initial 10, but it is also these other things, you know, definitely um police violence, right? Experiencing police violence in your neighborhood, ex experiencing um, chronic shootings. You know, in Phil Philadelphia, we're experiencing a lot of um, gun violence right now. Those are absolutely traumatic stressors and are absolutely impacting kids in schools. So 
what does this mean for our conversation with people and, and that, that are impacted in providers? The one thing that I want folks to take away from this, maybe more than one thing, but this is really important. We cannot, and I feel really strongly about this, I actually think there's an ethical imperative here. We cannot have a conversation about ACEs without also having a conversation about resilience. If we start talking to people about all the things that they've been exposed to and all those things that I just said might happen to them and we stop there, we have done them a disservice. So when we think about things, by the way, like um, broad-based screeners for ACEs, school-wide screeners for ACEs, please proceed with caution because we, if we leave folks activated because we've reminded them that they've experienced these things and that there's all these negative impacts and we don't ever talk about, hey, who was, who was there for you? right? What relationships could you count on, right? What happened in, in your community that made you feel connected? If we don't also have that conversation about resilience, we are doing folks a disservice. So this idea of being resilient, the ability to impact, uh, net, to impact and mitigate the impact of ACEs, we have to consider this. There's a, a resilience screener that I really like. There's now a um, documentary called Resilience, right? Um, that I highly recommend. Also Paper Tigers, highly recommend. Um, the uh, Chester County ACEs Coalition, which I'm a board member of, we are uh, doing community um, screenings of these films and going out and having conversations about these. So this idea that we can talk about traumas and exposures to adversity, we must also talk about resilience. Um, if for no other reason than to make sure that that person or that family that we're talking to understands that we understand that while there have been things in their life that have not gone well, we also see them as capable of change. We know that they have strengths. We know that they are able to be resilient and, and um, you know, use their experience of adversity and move forward in a way in their life that says, we don't think that the story ends here. We don't think that you're a lost cause now because of this. And there's often conversation, even among school psychologists, where it's like, well, you know, there are six on the ACEs screener. So like, what are we gonna do about that? Like that cannot happen. Um, and if we wanna advocate for this, then when our colleagues say stuff like that, we need to call them out on it and say, hey, hold on a second. Have you have you looked at any of the resilience research? Because it suggests that actually people that have been exposed to adversity can also go on to have really productive lives. Um, so we cannot have that one conversation without having the other. So the ability to survive, not only survive, but to, to thrive despite that adversity is this idea of resiliency. And there's um, you know some old proverbs and, and um, stories around broken bowls and, and broken ceramics where the fracture or the crack is filled in with, you know, a, a precious metal typically, and actually that's what becomes stronger, right? And that those um, variations in one's sort of identity or the visual identity become the places where the folks are the most strong. So hear me also, that does not mitigate or make it okay that the person has experienced trauma, right? I often hear this also, um, you know, well, you've experienced that, but now you're so much stronger. Look, you survived, you're so much stronger, um, you know, go you, and, um, you know, that happened for a reason did not happen for a reason, right? Let, let's not also minimize folks' experiences and exposures, but we also have to make sure that we leave them and we leave them with a sense of hope as well. So everyone with me there on that resilience piece, the adversity piece, Rebecca, I don't know that I've cleared up this idea of how people define trauma at all, but I think the awareness, our awareness has to be around the range and continuum of definitions and, and um, you know, ways that adversity and stress can impact people. You yeah. mentioned just to uh, you mentioned a resilience screener that you liked. Can you share mm -hmm. what that what that is? 
Yeah, literally, it's called the Resilience Screener. <laughs> there you go. Uh, it's not very fancy. It's available in the public domain. Um, I, um, if I'm remembering correctly, where I got it, it, it may have been through the American Academy of Pediatrics. I now give it away, right? Um, and I'll make sure that you guys have a link to that, uh, or I get you a copy of it because it's freely available in the public domain. And it asks questions about, you know, things like, you know, what relationships did you have in your life? that were meaningful or supportive to you, right? Um, it, it asks about access to resources that one might have had that could have potentially buffered the impact of those stressors. So I'll make sure I get you guys a copy of that. It, but it's not very fancy, it's called the resilience screen. <laughs> awesome. So when I think about why public health intersects with public education and why this is important to us, that's what we're gonna talk about next. So. Anyone, well, I know a couple of you have seen this because you came to my talk that I did when I talked about this. Um, I love this visual because it really highlights how ACEs and adverse childhood experiences are so intimately related to adverse community experiences. And I would say that both of those are impacted by historical um, adversity, as Rebecca, you pointed out earlier. So not just, right, physical and emotional neglect, not just having a family member who's incarcerated or has mental illness or sexual and emotional abuse or domestic violence, but chronic poverty, right? Be living in a place where someone can't earn a livable wage, right? And are living in chronic poverty, um, chronic discrimination, community disruption, right? When we think about um, you know, regentrification in some communities where folks that have lived there for many, many years are being pushed out of their homes and pushed out of the community. Lack of opportunity, economic mobility and social capital, right? And, and if we look at some of our history of redlining and some of our history of um, practices that ha happened in the financial district, and we know that policies and practices have been, been in place that have not equally benefited everyone, and they matter to this conversation. That history absolutely matters. Poor housing quality and affordability, violence. This idea that it's not just the things that we see maybe in the school, but it's the things that are happening in the community as well. And really that visual, this is what public health is. This is idea, this idea that they are all related in, in um, intimate and complex ways that have, I would say, multi-directional influence, right? So if, if you're living in poverty, um, you experience community violence and you, um, your mom also experienced pretty significant depression, those are going to impact you and be related to one another and absolutely will show up in the classroom. So public health framework, this is from the American Public Health Association. It's really just idea that public health promotes and protects the health of communities of peoples where they live, learn, work, and play, right? So that every aspect of a person's life can be involved in public health. And this learn, work, play bit is very much related to where schools fit in. I would say they fit in, in all four of those domains, but really this idea of thinking about the big picture, not just thinking about a kid that comes in at 7.15 and leaves at 4.30, but everything else that's happening in their life. So while a doctor treats people who are sick, and in many ways, school psychologists do too, we see a lot of times the tier three kids who have already experienced you know, something that's brought them to us. Public health looks to understand how do we prevent them from getting sick in the first place, right? How do we prevent the fact that our caseloads for tier three um, interventions are, you know, increasingly high or the fact that we are doing so many assessments, so many assessments, so many assessments, public health would say, look at what we can do to prevent that, right? Which in some ways feels a little bit like RTI, MTSS, right? Really school psychology borrowed a lot of that from public health, but this idea of how do we think about prevention and how do we promote wellness in the first place? Does that make sense? Absolutely. And it makes yeah. me think too, as school psychologists in our building, even if we are preventing in 
while the kit are offering, you know, strategies for kids to connect with adults and feel safe to help them process what's happening outside of school in their larger community. It's like this, this safe place, yeah. you know, it's may not be preventative, but it can be positive. Yeah. And, and it may be preventative in that it, it mitigates the impact of other traumatic stressors, right? So I think yeah, the, we should be pressing ourselves to think about how does my role fit into a bigger picture, right? How does my role as a school psychologist also intersect with things like equity, poverty, access to services, or economic stability, right? It, it helps us think about what are some of the downstream impacts, the, the, the later impacts of what we're seeing on the front end. Um, so, you know, when, when I ask folks what trauma-informed practice or trauma-informed care means, I get a lot of different answers. So this, like, what the heck do you mean when you say trauma-informed care, trauma-informed practice, or trauma-informed communities, trauma-informed this, that, right? In many ways, it's become a buzzword. And I would say we don't actually have a lot of agreement in the literature or the practice field or in policy around what the heck we actually mean. This is a problem, right? This creates a problem when we think about education and training and, and even writing policy and changing legislation, because if we're not all knowing what we're talking about, we can get ourselves in trouble. Um, so Susan Cole, Overstreet, these are some of the definitions that come up, right? TIC refers to an approach to addressing impacts of traumatic stress by systematically integrating trauma-informed knowledge and practices throughout the entire system. In this case, in our case, schools and school systems, right? Um, Sandra Ghosh-Ippen talks about the ripple effect and how really trauma-informed practices and trauma-informed care is about rippling this knowledge through systems, through the school, through the community, through the building, so that everyone starts to understand what this means. Um, American Academy of Pediatrics has adopted a definition as well that I like and I think can work for us in many ways because it does again focus on this idea of organizational structure, right, and treatment framework. We're not just talking about one-off interventions, we're talking about larger systemic issues, recognizing responding to the effects of trauma, emphasizes physical, psychological, emotional safety for patients and providers, and helps rebuild a sense of control and empowerment. Fairly broad definition, but I think we have to recognize that it really is about big picture systems level work. Does that make sense in terms of how I at least think about it or what's coming up in the literature? Is that consistent with, with what you guys are hearing? Yes, and I, th I think that as you already noted, that framework is necessary, that the right. operational definitions and um, sometimes, especially in education, probably in public policy too, when buzzwords come around and things look shiny, we jump on a lot of bandwagons and spend money and it, yeah. it's not always the right approach. Right. So having, I think, a clear definition and um, this might be jumping the gun, but in, in your book, you spend a lot of time on evidence-based practices and theoretical frameworks. And um, and I think they're very valuable. And, and I think you lay that out really nicely um, with research. So um, it's important, I think, for us to really recognize that and look at what uh, what the research says and, and what clear definitions are. Yeah, and, and I would also say that using the literature to guide practice is, is so important, particularly when we think about how, um, how change happens, because mm -hmm. what, what we're learning more and more is that systemic, structure, organizational systems level change takes time. It takes time, it takes investment, financial, emotional, relational, right? It takes commitment. And these changes do not happen immediately. And while districts or 
um, you know, healthcare practices want to maybe check a box that say, yeah, I do trauma-informed practice, or yeah, I did implicit bias training, that if there is not a back-end commitment to long-term change, we will miss the mark. Mm -hmm. And it's hard because people want to know that their investment's going to have a return and they want to see that return immediately. But oftentimes the return is not immediate. And I have some research that I'm going to highlight that kind of speaks to this idea that it is long term change and it's organizational level change. And that's where I think school psychologists actually have a lot of understanding and knowledge that they can be really instrumental in. So won't spend a ton of time here. Um, Folks can read about this in the book or, you know, in a lot of other places. But SAMHSA really had the framework, right, that started our conversation, although, you know, they pulled it from a lot of other places. But I would say they they were the ones that maybe made it more um, a more um, recognizable term. This idea that a trauma informed environment will realize, recognize, respond and resist re-traumatization, the four R's. Right. That's what we think about when we think about what a trauma informed whatever looks like. Um, they also had in their earlier uh, versions of their sort of framework principles of TIC that I think are really helpful to guide our framework. So there are things that um, these are practices or organizations or structures or systems that promote safety. They promote trustworthiness and transparency, peer support, collaboration, mutuality, empowerment and choice, cultural, historical and gender issues. So when I think about a school and I think about how often a teacher maybe doesn't feel like they fully understand what I'm doing as a school psychologist with a kid or why I have to do that or what is happening with the family or how does this actually impact the kid? This idea of transparency and building trust is really, really important and not just with the kids, but with one another, right? This idea that we recognize that our teachers are experiencing significant levels of burnout and their own stressors as a result of caring for kids who have had adversity. You know, when I think about peer support, how important that is. When I think about, um, whether we're talking about the kids or the staff, empowerment and choice, right? These to me don't apply just to the end user, not just the patient, not just the student, but the provider, the administrator, right? Big picture thinking, everybody that's connected to that system, we need to have these in mind. And that's where Sandra Ghosh Ippen's work talking about the ripple effect is really valuable because she talks about how it's not just, you know, the end user, it's all of us that have to be thinking about these things. So, when we look at the literature, we can pull some of our knowledge from healthcare settings. Um, and I think when I think about one of the barriers to doing this work, I think about the fact that we are very siloed, that school psychology or psychology doesn't often talk to, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics or the public health practitioners. We sort of like to stay in our little bubble, oftentimes, at least in research, which then drives practice, and not look outside of our own um, discipline to seek answers and collaborations. But I think this is a place where we can do that and we should be doing that. When we think about trauma-informed care in healthcare settings, I would say that healthcare is actually a bit further along than we are in, in education. And there are things that we can learn from them, um, particularly psychiatric nursing uh, kind of had some interesting um, initiatives and leadership in this space, but just a couple studies to highlight how people are trying to research this. Because if we think about systems level change, it makes it hard to know always what are the metrics we're using to figure out if something's working or not, right? It's not like I can give somebody a drug and then measure whether or not their symptoms went down, right? That you can't, to do a randomized controlled trial of trauma-informed practices is really challenging and expensive. So there are different ways that folks do this, and I think we can borrow from healthcare. So the researcher who looked at retrospective medical files and did an audit and used seclusion and restraint as their metrics. And so in a school, we often use office referrals and expulsions or suspensions in this uh, almost 500 bed psychiatric 
facility in Minnesota for kids. They looked at 12 months pre and post implementation of trauma-informed care program that was aimed at reducing restraints and seclusion and showed a, a reduction of about two thirds, right? And what that meant was educating their staff members about what trauma is, how it works, how to show up with kids, how to de-escalate so that we don't end up having kids triggered and then restraining them and secluding them. So when we look at healthcare settings and what they're doing, I think there are things to learn. Um, this other group of researchers looked at um, also restraint seclusion across five inpatient psychiatric hospitals. Um, and their, their uh, metrics were staff training, organizational policy changes. And when I think about a policy change, I think about something that now changes how we do something. Environmental changes literally on the ward. So think about the school or the classroom. Collaborative decision-making with patients. So actually involving patients in dis making decisions about their care. What might that look like if we were to think about our students? Collaborative decision-making and education. They were evaluated over a three and a half year period. That's a long time for some folks that want to know right now whether it's working or not. But ultimately, there was almost an eight, there was an 82% reduction in the rate of seclusion and restraint between baseline and follow-up, suggesting that they met a lot of their goal indicators. So again, what might that look like in an educational setting? Well, we have some folks that have been able to give us some of those answers, but this is hard stuff to research. And actually, Eric, thinking about CDPR and community-based participatory research plays a role here. So there's this program, University of California, this is one example of uh, a group that has you know, tried to and worked to evaluating impact of trauma-informed practices in schools. They developed a model called Healthy Environments in Response to Trauma in Schools, Heart School-Wide Response to Intervention and Multi-Tiered Systems Support a Framework. Hello, who does that sound a lot like? School psychologists, this is the language we speak. This is our this is our wheelhouse. This is where we know how to do stuff here, right? So look between 2009 and 2014. That's a chunk of time, right? That's a long period of time for um, uh, a board a school board member to know that something's working. Oh, that staff training that I paid for actually matters, and it impacted kids and, and staff. Sometimes it takes time to know that those things are working. One of the goals of the project and where it really came out of the work came out of was examining exclusionary and punitive discipline practices that disproportionately impact students of color, right? And we know that this is true time and time again. We see this in the data that seclusions, restraints, that expulsions and suspensions occur in higher rates in our students of color. The idea that guided this study was to bring a trauma lens to the school to prison pipeline. They had some questions. These are the research questions. <coughs> Excuse me, was there an increase in school's personnel? Was there improvement in students' engagement? Was there a decrease in behavioral problems associated with the loss of, loss of instructional time? Was there a decrease in trauma-related symptoms in students who received HEARTS therapy? So these were the questions that guided their study. By the way, this was not a randomized control study, right? The people that were doing the intervention knew they were doing the intervention. They, they couldn't be blinded to whether or not they were you know, giving therapy or not. Or, or using a um, you know trauma-informed knowledge when they're writing a behavior intervention plan, so you couldn't blind it. It was very much uh, you used a program evaluation approach, right? Which um, takes time. So using that program evaluation approach and the public health prevention tri triangle, which is also our RTII or MTSS, they used elements of ARC, so attachment, self-regulation, and competency across all three tiers, and developed three tiers of support that they believe were instrumental in depth, you know, a trauma-informed program. So tier one, every single staff member was trained. Every single staff member, and not just once, but in ongoing ways, right? There was an ongoing long-term commitment to educating staff at a tier one level. At tier two level, 
there was a focus on trauma-informed behavioral support plans, which integrated an understanding and awareness of trauma, its impact, and that individual child's exposure to trauma, and how that directly impacted their behavior, so at a tier two level. And then at a tier three level, those kiddos did did experience and had access to trauma-specific, culturally congruent psychotherapy or counseling that also included work with their caregivers, parents, or grandparents, right? That, that tier three psychotherapy was provided by the clinicians from the study. So one of the weaknesses of doing this research is that it takes money, right, and time. So who paid for, the grant is what paid for the training. The grant, this was in the San Francisco School District. The grant is what paid for the psychotherapy at tier three, right? But what happens when the grant runs out? What happens when you know, we need multiple years to build uh, a regular funding source within the district to support this kind of work, it's hard to do. That's where, to me, community-based participatory research, which I do believe the authors didn't call this a CBPR research study, but I believe it is because it's framed in this way that says, hey, here were researchers at University of San Francisco, got the San Francisco School District. Is there something that we could partner on that would be mutually beneficial? Are there things that you need that match up with things that we might be able to provide? Are there ways that we can explore funding that will support both of our initiatives and help us build a collaborative and equal partnership where we're not just coming in, swooping and taking data and running away with it, but we're actually engaged long-term. We're building long-term relationships, right? So what was the impact here and how might we use this as a blueprint? Well, disciplinary office referrals declined, knowledge among staff and impact on trauma significantly improved. Student engagement increased in behavioral incidents, including those that involve physical aggression, also decreased. 87% decrease in total incidences across year two, 86 of those involving physical aggression. There was a significant reduction in behavior problems, including those that involved physical behavioral incidences. Um, here's a really important thing to think about. There was no change at year one in out-of-school suspensions. So if all we had was funding for year one and we saw no changes in out-of-school suspensions, we might say this was not working and we might say this is not a good investment, right? But if we just come in and think short-term and don't think long-term, we would miss that at year five, there was a 95% decrease in out-of-school suspensions. But things take those take time to build systems level change, right? Because I need to make sure every single person in that building is, is on board with a new culture and way of viewing things. And that is not something where you can just say, here's your placebo and here's your drug, right? These are hard things to study, which then makes the evidence base difficult to establish in many ways. Pre and post treatment indicated that significant reduction in those tier three kids, those symptoms across all domains. So adjustment to trauma, affect regulation, intrusions, attachment and dissociation. So our tier three kids also had a reduction in those negative symptoms. Um, so to me, this to me is a potential blueprint, but it also, we also have to remember that what works in the San Francisco school district may not work in the Philadelphia school district and may not work in the, um, you know, Miami-Dade school district because understanding local context, knowledge, and need has to be a part of how we build these research partnerships and how we look at long-term sustainable change that includes um, a trauma-informed lens and seeks to build trauma-informed communities. Does that make sense in terms of some of the literature that's out there around this? That really does. And, and just in terms of understanding systemic change, um, holding out for, for outcomes is so important. Um, but also, what a great concept. Um, you know, you mentioned evidence-based practices in your book, and you have a really good structural framework for connecting that to what you're doing. And 
you know, taking it from evidence-based medicine right. and evidence-based practices in medicine also look a lot at base rates. So um, I think that hits the nail right on the head when we look at the needs of each community, right? So, you know, Flint, Michigan, for an example, um, is, you know, going to have a very different base rate behaviorally, academically, um, you know, health-wise than right. Philadelphia or Los Angeles or right. County, Florida. So, um, yeah. And, and just as you're saying this, you know, the, the connection between our environment, our health, our public policy, our health policies and our um, educational practices and policies, um, you know, the light bulb is, you know, kind of going off a little bit uh, for me. So it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say these things are all connected um, very much. So I'm going to, um, Summarize this research. This is a study that my colleagues and I are doing. Um, phase one has already been completed. We're in phase two data collection. Um, you can read it, but we ultimately, we had research questions about education and training of school psychologists. So what we ultimately found was that school psychologists do not feel as prepared as they need to, to make meaningful impact in this area, which tells us that we need to do a better job of training. We need to train them in grad school. We need to train them out of grad school and they want to get better at this. And they don't always feel like they have the resources or training to do it. They also don't always feel like they have the confidence to work with kids who have experienced trauma that they, because of their lack of training, they don't feel confident in their ability to address these kids needs. This is an issue that as a, as a profession, we need to address the knowledge of their impact, how would they rate the confidence in, in what they understand about trauma, development, learning, behavior, how those things are connected? Not where I would want to see them, right? We've got 48% of them are saying minimal, 12% are saying I've had none, right? I don't have any confidence in that area. That tells us that we need to continue to push this conversation forward. So with that in mind, where what's the role of the school psychologist? I'm going to highlight to me what I think are the main points because I'm aware of our time. Focusing on resilience, focusing on justice, social justice, public health, and mental health. This idea that equality and equity has to be part of the conversation. And I'm gonna go through, folks will have a copy of these slides so they can read them. Um, again, why psychology and social justice? Those of us that went into the helping profession, um, our values are often very much aligned with making sure that all people have the things that they need to be successful. And I think we can't forget this when we think about advocacy. We need to think about things like intersectionality, a major plug for the social justice interest group, Charles Barrett and his team who are doing phenomenal work. Go and check out what they're doing because this stuff matters in the work that we are doing. So knowing about intersectionality, knowing about identities, great visual from them. Again, go to NASP's website, you can see more of that. Um, having a shared understanding, knowing about things like race, privilege, implicit bias, microaggressions, cultural relevance, building our own knowledge because we recognize that many of us don't feel like we have the knowledge. We need to look to our colleagues and our professional organizations to build this knowledge. Um, with that, we also have to think about our privilege, how it impacts those that we work with. Um, this is hard. Being aware of your own stuff and how it impacts your work is not easy. And it's something that I think we have to continually examine if we're going to be effective in this work. So insight and awareness. This, again, is from the social justice group. Recognizing that you have privilege does not require you feeling guilty. Rather, it's an essential step towards understanding how privilege might shape your views or negatively affect others, even unintentionally. Right. This, to me, is what advocacy work is about. This, to me, is what systemic change is about, is recognizing where we are and where we'd like to be to be leaders and agents of change. Thinking about things like implicit bias, recognizing that everybody has them and that it's how we scan our environment and stay safe. 
but we also have to understand how those mental constructs impact those around us, including when they are not in our awareness. And, and if we think as school psychologists that we are immune to this, we are wrong. This absolutely is relevant for us and we need to examine it in our practices because this is part of what being trauma-informed is about. Race, racism and discrimination, there's a bunch of studies I cite here that talk about um, the impact of racial discrimination, um, how that impacts certain groups, obviously in, in unequal ways and, and why that's important for us to think about in schools, racism and, and mental health. Microaggressions, these are happening in our schools, these are happening among our teachers, these are happening among our colleagues, and we're not always aware of them, and we need to increase our awareness of what they are and how we can work to mitigate them. So bottom line, this is what I wanted to get to. What do we do? We think about social justice. We recognize that implicit bias exists. We recognize our own privilege. We think about things like racism and discrimination when we are thinking about the fact that, wow, this one group of kids is getting expelled and suspended at exponential rates to our other kids. Why is that? That is not an accident, right? That is not a, just a happen chance. We have to understand that that is part of being trauma-informed, understanding what racism is and how discrimination works as part of that working towards allyship, being partners in this work, educating ourselves about historical oppression and trauma, examine who is at the table. When you are in your leadership meetings, look around. And if there are a bunch of white folks there and you do not see folks that are differently abled or, uh, or have different cultural identities or have different languages, that is a part of the structural problem. And we need to be part of bringing more voices and folks to the table and, and following those who have lived experience when we think about big picture trauma-informed systems. Um, focusing on advocacy and policy, thinking about just not just your own school, but the organization on state level. So big plug for joining your state association. It's a great place to get involved. Um, look beyond the school and recognize that your role is not just here in this one classroom in this one school building or one district, but impacts all these other things around it. And that young person is involved in all those different layers and really Trauma-informed to me is not just a practice or a policy, but it's a community. Like, what would a trauma-informed country look like, right? Um, you know, lofty goal, but I think that's where we need to be headed. That's amazing, wonderful, and yeah. um, I'm just I'm glad I'm glad you gave a shout out to Charles Barrett. He's our next guest. Yeah. Oh, so, Two weeks. Um, uh and in two weeks, we will look forward to oh, perfect blending this conversation. So all that stuff that I just rushed through, Charles will crush it. So that makes me really happy. Ooh, yeah, that, that's exactly where we need to go. And I'm so excited. That worked out really well. Good, good, yeah. good segue. Yeah, really good segue. <laughs> just yeah. to, on some things that you said, I mean, you mentioned how, um, you know, we school psychologists don't feel comfortable with stuff, this stuff. And I agree. We need more training. Um, it's such, I mean, I hear that a lot from, from doing these podcasts, you know, the, the people that are into measurement say, you know, we don't have enough, you know, classes on for psychs to truly understand measurement and we don't have enough classes uh, for psychs to understand reading and the science of reading. Um, I was, you know, I mentioned to somebody that I, I took a reading course, for example, in my grad school, and then I looked back at the current syllabus for my grad school and they removed that reading course and put in like a school safety course, which I think is now, um, you know, since I've graduated, you know, a super important thing. Right. There's, there's so many um, 
aspects of school psychology that we really need to be well informed on because we we wear so many hats in the school yeah. and then we get involved in so many different capacities and it makes me think that you know can we fit all this into like a specialist level program do we need to think about like i mean we have a shortage obviously to, to sort of move right. to doctoral only would be problematic but there mm -hmm. is it's, it's crazy how how much we need to know really um and how little time there is to fit it all in yeah. And as a trainer of school psychologists, I think about that a lot. Um, you know, how do I teach you all the things I need to teach you in this short amount of time? For me, this trauma informed piece, the social justice piece, this ha this is not one class and then check the box and it's done. This I mean, my students, I'm, I'll, I'll probably make them watch this and they'll chuckle to themselves because I talk about this in every single class I teach and I don't ever stop talking about it. Right. It's integrated in their readings. I'm making sure that the the, the authors that they're reading are marginalized voices that aren't typically in syllabi. This has to be threaded through everything we do, not just one class, but really showing up across the curriculum, right? And I would say in grad school and beyond, not just in this one space. Oh, just in you know this one meeting, we talk about inequity. No, 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 that should show up in every single conversation we have, whether or not we say it or not, or it's just driving our thinking that has to be there across everything. I mean, you'll also find that I've found that the more I do this professionally, this this is part of my, my personal lens too, right? This really um, changes things in important ways. Um, so we're going to ask for any last minute questions. If anybody has anything, um, we're, we're on the lookout. Um, Rebecca's posted 1215. Yes, uh, Dr. Barrett will be, will be here. So that'll be really awesome. Uh, yeah, segue and transition. Um, I had one other thought that I'm going to throw out there. I know you talked at the at the start that the, there's problems with uh, the, having a uniform definition, having a uniform understanding of like what trauma-informed practices are and what that looks like, because that does get thrown around a lot. Mm -hmm. I know that um, Evidence-Based School Psychology page did share out a research article or a lit review, really, that looked at, and I had pulled it up here, so I'm going to read it. It's called uh, Effects of Trauma-Informed Approaches in Schools of Systematic Review. Mm -hmm. And it highlighted some of the things that you talked about, just that, you know, I think to research this stuff is so difficult. And so they didn't find much in their in their review, because, mm. again, this is kind of an emergent thing. And it's so difficult to research and, and so takes so much time, like you said, like the five years and really mm -hmm. kind of sticking with it. So I just, yeah. you know, it's also complicated. <laughs> if only yeah. there was, you know, like you said, we're going to end with so many questions. And now I have so many questions. And I'll say one last thing, as practitioners, one of the ways that we can move the conversation around evidence-based practice and research partnerships forward is to seek out partnerships with our local universities, with think tanks, policy groups that want to learn what we're doing and we can learn from. So, you know, if you're a school psychologist in an elementary school, do not hesitate to look to your local university, their practitioners, their researchers, their faculty members and say, hey, I'm interested in, in building a partnership to study this. Do, do you have any interest, right? You know, cold calling, I did a, I do a lot of that, right? But like, you know, hey, this is what I do. Would you be willing to talk? That is how some of these things start. These do not just have to be, you know, the um, the research institutions going to the districts, but also feel, know that you can reach out to us in the university and say, hey, would you want to look at this with us? Like, this is really a problem that we're experiencing and we're looking for partners. That is do that, do that, you know, and, and that's a good way to find partnerships. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming. I, I can say as a person that that feels like they don't know enough about this, and this is really informative and I think is, you know, 
like I said, I, I have questions now. And so I think that it will prompt people to go and research a little bit and learn a little bit more and make an impact with that. Okay. So. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. So good night, everybody. Hope that everybody enjoyed uh, the Thanksgiving break and that hopefully people were not doing too many evaluations <laughs> and um, that you, it was restful and you practiced your self-care. So uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And we'll see you in about two weeks. Bye-bye. <laughs>